Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Arthi Thangudu. She's a doctor, a triple board certified physician in endocrinology, diabetes, and thyroid. She's in San Antonio, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, her practice and um, if there's any research that she does as well. So, Arthi, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so are you doing uh, clinical work only, or are you also doing research? So I do mostly clinical work. Um, I have done research in the past as a fellow, and I do sort of, since I am so clinical, but I'm very data-driven and data-oriented, I track my own outcomes and I analyze my own data. So I haven't really published my own personal data, but I do collect and and assess it. Okay. And then, so the patients that you see clinically, are you dealing more with like thyroid conditions or diabetes or it's just... A whole range of stuff. So the majority of my patients have diabetes, I would say probably 80%. And then the next most common disease I treat is thyroid disease. And then the rest, maybe 5% are other hormonal diseases. But the majority of my practice is dedicated to diabetes, chronic metabolic diseases that come with that hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity, overweight, those types of things. Do you see any interaction between people that have diabetes and thyroid conditions? Yeah. So for type 1 diabetes, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. And when you have one autoimmune disease, you're more likely to have another autoimmune disease. So yeah, Hashimoto's thyroiditis um, is the most common thyroid disease that we see. And that's also an autoimmune disease. So we do see a fair amount of overlap between the two. And also... Graves disease is also an autoimmune disease, but not as not nearly as common as Hashimoto's. But yes, a lot of concurrent diabetes, type one diabetes and autoimmune thyroiditis. Also, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it's just such a common disease and it tends to become more common as people age. And so does type two diabetes. So, so there is a, a lot of overlap. There are a lot of patients who have both. Well, tell me about Hashimoto's versus Graves. So what do the conditions do? Yeah, so Hashimoto's typically causes hypothyroidism. So how it works is there are antibodies that attack itself. So the body recognizes its thyroid as other, and so it develops antibodies to attack the thyroid in Hashimoto's. Now, some people just have the antibodies and never actually ever develop hypothyroidism. After the antibodies have attacked the thyroid to the point where it's about 90% destroyed, the thyroid starts to lose its ability to produce as a thyroid hormone. So people can have symptoms like weight gain, fatigue, hair thinning, hair loss, dry skin, cold intolerance, depressed mood, kind of a slowing of the system. Most people develop that in mid to later life, but you know, even infants can have it. We have congenital hypothyroidism in some patients. And um, like I said, some people with the antibodies never have it. 
And then on the flip side, Graves is an autoimmune disease that actually stimulates the thyroid. So instead of making the thyroid function less, it makes the thyroid overactive. So people, um, instead of hypothyroidism, they have hyperthyroidism. So that's a, a disease that kind of revs you up, increases heart rate, weight loss, anxiety, insomnia, lots of things that kind of make you go faster. That is that is, the one where your eyes will bulge out a bit as well? Yeah. Some people do have a Graves' eye disease or Graves' ophthalmopathy, which, yeah, you get kind of a bugging of the eyes. And usually we need, uh, well, oftentimes we need oculoplastic intervention for that. Oh, really? Why? What does it do to your eyes? Why, why does it make them bug out sometimes? So there's something called GAGs, glucose aminoglycans, that um, build up behind the eyes and actually pushes them out physically. Very interesting. So you said type 1, because it's autoimmune, unfortunately, people are predisposed to more autoimmune autoimmune problems. What about type 2? I know that there's a whole host of comorbidities, but you know what else happens, like let's say in, in regards to someone's thyroid or any other endocrine function in their body when they have diabetes? What happens, uh, you know, endocrine wise? So type 2 diabetes, fortunately, does not predispose you to having hypothyroidism. So the what really happens in type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance that does affect other organs, uh, but not in an autoimmune way. Insulin resistance also affects the heart and also um, hyperglycemia, high blood sugars can affect vessels, nerves that are everywhere, right? So we can get eye disease, heart disease, kidney disease, uh, neuropathy, which is numbness and tingling in the hands and feet. But those aren't really hormonal processes. Those are more vascular processes. I like to think of type 2 diabetes as a cardiometabolic process and a, a vascular disease, not an autoimmune disease. Okay. Well, at least it doesn't predispose you to, to autoimmune problems. So people that have diabetes, their thyroids are okay? Or do they have like particular issues because of it? With type 2 diabetes? No, it doesn't cause any thyroid. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered. And you mentioned a few of the effects of, uh, you know, of diabetes. You said dyslipidemia. What does that, you know, it has to do with fat? What does that mean? Like the the storage of fat is is, uh, more preferential in certain areas? Or what does that mean? So when you have hyperglycemia, you have multiple different vascular injuries or insults that impair vascular flow. You Hyperglycemia can affect the, the vessel walls, making them thicker or stiffer. And people with diabetes have a higher tendency to also have concurrent high cholesterol because diabetes is a metabolic disease, just like hyperlipidemia. So, so those patients are more prone to having things like atherosclerosis, um, which can manifest as heart attack or, or heart disease too. Mm, Okay. So most of the patients you see, are they all progressing and getting worse or have some of them, you know, have you found ways to slow or stop the progression of anyone's diabetes? Yeah. So one of my cohort populations is retired police officers and retired firefighters. And I think this is a really to learn some of the most from. So Basically, I have been assigned the most challenging patients with diabetes who really have exhausted the treatments in in their PCP's toolbox. 
These are all patients who have had a PCP or perhaps have even been seen by an endocrinologist before me, but just have not been doing well, have not been controlled. And so um, I'm really big on lifestyle optimization. I'm actually board certified in my, I got my third board certification in 2019 in lifestyle medicine. So I really like to work with patients on things like diet, nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress, all of these things that all of us know are super important, but in a traditional medical setting aren't often addressed for a multitude of reasons, time being a major one. And, you know, I thought before I started working with this population that perhaps they'd be very challenging and perhaps I wouldn't be able to make leaps and bounds in them because people had already tried, right? And it turns out that it is not so. These patients have done so well. And of course, we optimize their medications and and some of them haven't been on ideal medication regimens. But, you know, I spend a good amount of time working with them on evidence-based nutrition and the rest of their lifestyle. And these patients have done remarkably well on average, reducing their A1C by about 2%, which some studies have shown a 50, almost 50% reduction per 1% A1C reduction. So, you know, that's like a 75 plus reduction in, in complication risk in some of these patients. So yeah, we are, we do have tools to really stop, stop diabetes in its tracks and, and get patients toward a better health. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So reducing A1C by 1% uh, correlates with what? It depends on where they start. So for example, if a patient goes from an A1C of 8.5 to 6.5, their average sugars, I can't do the calculation in my head, but it's probably always on average over 200. Now we've brought their average blood sugar down to like mid 100s. And so at that lower blood sugar point, or perhaps even less than 150s, right? The risk of complications from diabetes, like the eye disease, kidney disease, heart disease, things like that, um, go down markedly to almost none because from diabetes. So they, they go from high risk to pretty much low risk of complications. Okay. So again, of your patient cohort, like when, when do you tend to see people? Do you have them come in regularly or do they come in only for emergencies? Like how often do they see you? So it depends on the patient. So in my, uh, I have a private practice to complete medicine. That's a membership-based practice. And so those patients have access to me all the time, <laughs> as much as they want. And so I typically see those patients every month. Some of them don't need to be seen that often, and some of them need to be seen more frequently, um, especially in the beginning stages. 
when we're really aggressively titrating medications, titrating lifestyle, trying to really reduce medications. In those times, the patients typically see me more frequently. In my private practice, I usually see them two weeks after their initial visit, and then we space it out to about every month. With the firefighters, something similar to that. You know, sometimes they'll see me after their initial visit in three to four weeks because I really teach them so much in that first visit that I want to consolidate what they've learned and and help support and guide them as they're these big lifestyle changes, because it doesn't really make sense to me to do all this work on in one visit and then let them go and really not have any of those goals that they set come into fruition. And goal setting is a huge part of this. So I really do individualized care. Patients see me at different frequencies depending on their level of comfort and where they are. After a while, though, some patients are ready to fly and they really do only need to see me every three months. They're stable and, and doing great. But I want to be there to support them to get to that point. And, you know, we all have tough times. So we can be flying solo, doing great for a while. And then something happens in life and we backslide. So if that happens, I, I don't like to, to, you know, not see them for enough that I won't be able to catch that and help them pick themselves up from, from getting off track either. Okay, so what are some of the new technologies that are helping people you know, fare better than have diabetes. So this is such an incredible time to be a physician in diabetes because there's so much diabetes tech. I think that two things have happened just in the past five years or so, or have been adopted more frequently in the last five years. One is continuous glucose monitoring systems like the Dexcom or Freestyle Libre. Basically, a patient wears a device and they get continuous access to their blood sugars. Um, The Freestyle Libre, they have to swipe to get their blood sugar. The Dexcom just reads out their blood sugars all the time. So they get alerted if they're going low, going high, and so they can respond. It's not just information, but it's empowerment for the patient because all of a sudden you have this tool that enables them to understand how their body responds to different foods, different exercises, different stressors, their menstrual cycle, all of these things that before were sort of a black box and and patients would get very confused about their blood sugars because nobody really wants to stick themselves a million times a day. But if you've got a device that painlessly can tell you blood sugar is doing reliably, uh, it just changes the game with diabetes. I think that has revolutionized people's life with, with diabetes and certainly has revolutionized endocrinology for me. We also have insulin pumps. Insulin pumps are most commonly used in type 1 diabetes because those patients require insulin, but there are type 2 patients who also need insulin, who are on insulin pumps. But we now have insulin pumps that talk to the continuous glucose monitors, and there is an algorithm that adjusts the insulin delivery based on the blood sugar, and it stops insulin delivery if the blood sugar is dropping low. So now technology does all the work that I would do in clinic every few months with a patient analyzing their their trends and then adjusting all those basal rates and and bolus rates for what they're based on what their blood sugars had been doing over the past few weeks to months. Um, Now the device assesses that real time and makes real time changes, which has been just 
revolutionary. I've seen patients, you know, I've, I've been lucky to be young in endocrinology in that I get to see these new technologies early in my career, but I'm old enough that I saw what patients went through before this technology was available. So I've gotten to see patients transition from insulin shots to these new pumps or um, the old pumps to these new pumps and the leaps and bounds and ease on their minds and their, and parents' minds is truly remarkable. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. How close to the regulatory capacity of a, you know, a native pancreas is an insulin pump that's hooked up, let's say, to a CGM that's, you know, dispensing insulin appropriately based on the blood sugar level? Like, how good are they now? So, yeah, they're called an artificial pancreas. I don't think they're that close to what the human body can do about diabetes because the patients still have to bolus. Like, they have to still... So there's two ways insulin is delivered physiologically, and we mimic that with insulin. One is basal insulin that kind of is secreted all day long to counter the sugar that's constantly being produced by the liver. And the bolus insulin that's given for mealtimes or if the blood sugar is high. And when a patient with, with diabetes on insulin pump or any patient with type 1 diabetes is giving them bolus insulin for a meal, they have to count how many carbohydrates that they give themselves or how many carbohydrates that they've eaten. And then the pump has settings called a bolus wizard that we used to set uh, with a carb ratio. So how many units that they need to give for the number of carbs and also a correction factor. So if their blood sugar is high, how many extra units on top of that do they need to get their blood sugars back down to normal? So the patient has to, put in the number of carbs that they eat, because obviously the pump isn't going to know that automatically. Whereas the human body, if you ingest anything, you don't have to like tell your body that eat this for the pancreas to respond appropriately for it. So I think we're far away from the human pancreas, but much closer than we were even half a decade ago. But why is it still far away if it's uh, able to look at sugars in real time? Why can't it do a better job of regulating? Because it doesn't know what you're going to eat. If you eat 10 grams of carbs and you don't tell the pump that you ate those 10 carbs, it doesn't have the ability to sense that. Yes, it's better than it was before we had the basal regulation. Like, So if it senses that your blood sugar is high, it will increase your basal, but it won't when you bolus insulin, you have to give it in for insulin to work. You give it about 15 minutes before you eat so that it keeps your blood so that it's insulin takes a little while for onset of action insulin that you inject. And so if you are giving that reactively, the blood sugar will already go up. Why can't you tell the system that you're about to eat something? Yeah, that's what you do. It still doesn't work very well. You were asking, why isn't it as good as a human pancreas? Right, 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 right. Yep. So you, it's not like somebody without type 1 diabetes, someone who has no diabetes, they don't have to tell their body that they're, gonna, they're about to eat a brownie and to give it insulin, right? But with type 1 and insulin pumps, we have to tell it 15 minutes before for it to work well. So that's why I don't think 
that it's comparable to a human pancreas. But if someone's diligent about it and they do tell the device everything they're about to eat, then how good is it? Yeah, it's really good. Different people are different because just everybody, every person is different, but some people stay in range a large amount of the time. Do they stay in range as much as somebody who doesn't have diabetes at all? Probably not. Just based on uh, what we see on the CGM readouts, seeing somebody with a 75% or above time and range is really good. Whereas for me, I don't have type diabetes and I've worn a CGM and I'm in range 100% of the time, regardless of what I ate and whether it was healthy or not. So they're very good, um, but not quite as good as not having diabetes at all. Is there any insight into, um, you know, like I've worn a CGM for a period of time. So is my wife and, you know, we get like radically different curves, but some of it I don't understand. Supposedly when you sleep, if the if the sugar goes up a few hours before you wake, that's uh, you know, I like guess stress response when I guess cortisol and stuff are naturally, but I guess the dawn, the, the dawn effect is that when, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your body gets near the end of its sleep, then uh, the sugar will come up a bit for you to help wake up. But are there other CGM effects that are just inexplicable right now or not understood? Yeah, I think the a very interesting thing about CGM is that you're absolutely absolutely right. Everybody is different. Everybody responds differently to different, not just food, but exercise and stress and caffeine and everything. Um, and so, and actually it might be true that type patients with type one respond more similarly to one another than you or I, or anyone else who doesn't have, have type one, but usually, you know, at this point I've seen a lot of CGMs and it's not common that I see something that I can't completely explain. Sometimes the CGMs are inaccurate. So if it's really like, this makes no sense, we ask patients to corroborate with a finger stick glucose, which tends to be more accurate. Um, Like for example, if a patient is feeling fine, they have type two diabetes, they're not on any medications that cause hypoglycemia, but the CGM is reading low all the time. Usually when we check a finger stick at the same time, the CGM is just inaccurate. Yeah, calibrated, I've noticed. Yeah, with the Dexcom, you recalibrate, and even the Medtronic one, you have to recalibrate. A lot of patients are on Freestyle Libre, and sometimes if the sensor isn't in correctly, like they didn't apply it perfectly perpendicular mm-hmm. to the arm or something, or it moves and dislodges, then it can read. Usually when it reads inaccurately in those situations, it reads low. Yeah, I've, you know, the Dexcom works better for me. The lifestyle, it just keeps like popping off me, and it just doesn't give accurate reads ever. So I guess, you know, as usual for every person, there's different factors. So Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. What's coming new clinically that you're like really excited about? What's uh, Is there anything coming down the pike or there's enough new tools and things now to, to, you know, that we haven't seen the full effects of? We have more insulin pumps with closed loop algorithms coming up that are supposed to be better. And perhaps down the road, we may not even have to put in the carbs for a bolus. So I think that's pretty cool. There are so many third-party apps that are trying to help patients with type 1 and type 2. I think those are really cool. And I also think that what I think is the coolest thing that's coming up is that people are understanding more that 
diabetes is not just about the medications. In fact, the medications are perhaps not even the most important part. It's really the support, engagement, and empowerment of the patients. And creating a collaborative, supportive care team is so, so important in diabetes. I think that medicine traditionally has been very paternalistic, do as I say, don't, not as I do. And we've just seen repeatedly that that just does work with diabetes. We have to support our patients. And I think we have a lot of people now like health coaches and those who are interested in lifestyle and recognizing that patients don't just need us to be like barking orders at them about what of insulin they need to take. We need to be engaging in a partnership with our patients to help them get to the next level and ensure that their mental health is good because mental health is tied to physical health. And if one is out of whack, then it's much more likely that the other will be out of whack. So if we can really support our patients and ensure that they know that we are here for them and we make them part of their care. We have shared decision-making. I think we can really move mountains in the way of diabetes. Excellent. Arti, what's the best way for people to find out more? Yeah, I'm on social media. I am on Instagram. Um, my handle is at Dr. Arthi Thungadu. So just my name. My clinic website is www.sacomplete.com. And I just launched a YouTube channel today. So I'm going to be putting out evidence-based information on diabetes, um, lifestyle optimization, thyroid health, because I know there's a lot of confusing information on that available online. So I hope to be a solid source of evidence-based medicine and support for my patients through that medium as well. Well, very good. Well, Arthi, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Alrighty. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.